Good morning. This, um, this morning's, um, today's um, passage and uh, sermon is something that I prepared um, slightly over a week ago. It seemed a very apt, perfect passage for me, and I'll tell you why and all that. Um, the theme is all about a wedding feast, of course, and there's a lot of rejoicing. Um, and then we come today uh, after a week that has uh, shaken the world once again to crimes of hatred and violence and loss of hope and pain, pain. And I thought this is so inappropriate that that I just sort of request from God to change the sermon or to change the to change the passage or something like that because it's just not apt. And then, especially through the worship this morning, I was just uh, simply reminded by the fact that because of what is happening in the world, that is why rejoice. I'll say again, rejoice, as we just sang. The world, as, is, as the world is facing what's happening, there's, there's anger and there's sadness and there's pain. That's how the world can respond to that. You just hope that you're close to somebody who's only in pain and not in hatred or violence. We as Christians, because of who God is, because of the word of God, because of the Bible, because of the passage, that I'll be reading, we have a hope that can take us through that. And that's why I think that to speak today about a wedding feast is very, very apt. And um, I look forward to what God will do through that. So yeah, um, it's a, we continue today on a series of powerful parables uh, by Jesus. And yes, it was, um, it was one that I just could simply not turn down Definitely after the very memorable summer that Dita and I had uh, in which we married both of our sons in rapid sequence. Because today's parable is all about weddings. Plus, it addresses, at least when looked at as a narrative, one specific aspect of weddings, which we all learn might be the thorniest for both young marrieds and their anxious parents, the guest list. Who among the family, close and distant, and among friends, close and distant, gets invited on each side? And what if they don't all show up? What happens with the expensive meals we've ordered? Or in the case of our son Daniel's destination wedding in Cancun, what if we don't have enough guests staying at the hotel that offered us the wedding package? Needless to say, such uh, worries and concerns can get overwhelming. So I suspect that Jesus quickly attracted the attention of his audience when he chose this motif for a parable. But precisely because it was not just a story, but a parable. His goal was not providing us with a timeless wedding planning precede, but as the very first verse of today's passage makes it plain, explaining the kingdom of God. Let's pray that the Lord opens our eyes to these core spiritual truths as we open his word today. Yes, 
us, Lord, um, in the midst of where we are today, we look at you, we look to you, we look to your word, and we know that therein lies our hope, our life, our strength. And we pray that as we as we open these these very important passage, that uh, uh, guide guide me to to bring the, the the truth out of this. You may convict each one here present what that means in their own life. In Jesus' name, Amen. <coughs> so we start always, as always, with the context. Today's parable appears to have been spoken by Jesus after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in chapter 20. This means that Jesus had just entered this final period in his earthly life and ministry, the most tumultuous and monumental week, the true climax. And with that, the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders immediately increased. Not only was the controversial Galilean rabbi now literally in their face, but he promptly created a scene in front of them in the temple by kicking out all the temple merchants and overturning their stalls. So the religious leaders promptly reacted, first by questioning his authority to do these things, which Jesus masterfully rebutted in the previous chapter. Jesus won, religious leaders zero. So what follows that confrontation? A series of parables addressing the radical, upside-down economy of the kingdom of God and of what it takes to belong to this kingdom. In our modern evangelical lingo, we might say that this discussion is about who gets to go to heaven. But I can't help noticing how little the kingdom of God appears to have to do with heaven, in, at least in Jesus' eyes. I'm not saying that the kingdom is a purely earthly one. Jesus himself clearly said in John 18:36 that kingdom that his kingdom is not of this world. But parable after parable, the Lord seems to confirm that this outwardly kingdom has already started, that it's right here with us and in us. As for who gets to enter this kingdom and who gets left outside, who stays and who must leave? The parables that follow feel like interlocking mosaic pieces creating for us, if we listen carefully, a progressively clearer picture. But keep in mind that we here, 21st century believers, are his secondary audience. The religious leaders around Jesus were his primary audience, and they heard it loud and clear, repeatedly. And, how, and boy, did they get mad. In the parable of the two sons who both changed their mind that Jacques had preached on two weeks ago, Jesus clearly insinuated that any verbal commitments, we call these today professions of faith, don't get us into the kingdom if our later actions deny them. Hence, Jesus concluded that parable with the ultra-inflammatory pronouncement on the religious leaders Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Matthew 21, 31. Imagine the audacity of this statement. In the next parable in Matthew's gospel, the parable of the tenants that Colin spoke on last week, 
Jesus spells out his indictment even further. The punchline of that parable states, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Verse 43. Acts, the evangelist comments after the second parable, in light of all that Jesus has just said and done right in front of the religious leaders, is nothing short of funny. They perceived, the religious leaders perceived, that he was speaking about them. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we come to Matthew, to the start of Matthew 22nd, with today's passage, the parable of the wedding feast. An uncommon, but rather straightforward situation, a royal wedding, which would have been a lot more frequent event 2,000 years ago than in our days, especially for multitudes of lesser kings than the British crown. So the parable starts with the king minding his own business, planning a predictably large and sumptuous wedding, carefully preparing a long and well-curated guest list. Don't forget Prince so-and-so, and your auntie, the duchess so-and-so, and so forth. So when a whole bunch of these remote, long not seen relatives and various high society acquaintances ended up coming up with excuses for not attending and even bullying, the king's messengers. The king had a double problem, one not very dissimilar with our little family wedding nowadays, just a lot bigger. In the first place, this was obviously most embarrassing, and he needed to find a way to save face and show those miserable, ungrateful former guests that the wedding can go on just as well without them. Secondly, there probably was a lot of food already prepared, and the banquet hall likely had a minimum number of guests for their discounted wedding package. I'm kidding now, but you, you get the idea. So in the second act, had to be found, the guests had to be found and quickly. Hence the servants were sent to the streets to randomly invite anyone that they could find. Let's linger for a moment at this second act of the parable. We know, or at least can easily imagine, who the original guest list might have included. But who exactly were the new guests? The people gathered from the streets? We're not sure. But just in case we thought that there must have been some preset selection criteria by the king, like those living closer by, or those nicely dressed, or decent families, Jesus actually says, finally, the good and the bad. In other words, no selection criteria, no prerequisites, no conditions. And of course, therein lies the whole point of the parable. Reading the first act of this wedding drama as a parable with a decoder key provided to us by Jesus right in verse 1, what do we learn about the kingdom of God? The much-coveted kingdom of God seems to come with some drastic last-minute guest changes, not because of the fickleness of the king, but because of the unworthiness, first day, of the original guests. 
And this drastic reversal would have come as a dagger in the hearts of the religious elite Jesus was targeting in the parable. Their unquestioned entitlement based on their birthright as Jews, their tribe, their religiosity, or their self-aggrandizement meant nothing. Remember St. Paul's strong words in Roman 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And just like in the earlier parable of the two sons, if our later actions do not match our earlier words, we are in no position to claim entrance into the kingdom. Recall again Jesus' strong words earlier in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he or she who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The religious leaders of Jesus' time eventually got it and hated him dearly for saying it. What about us? Do we get it? Do I get it? Do we believe in our heart of hearts that we're not simply entitled to heaven because of a professional faith we might have made at a youth camp in high school 30 years back? Or our belonging to what we proudly call a Bible-believing church or denomination? Or our so-called spiritual maturity? Painful considerations. So who then actually gets in? In the words of Jesus' hearers about the rich young men, who then can be saved? Luke 18, 26. Well, today's parable makes it quite clear. Anyone, anyone, both good and bad. First man, no prerequisites, no conditions. Ouch. I don't know about you, but to me, anyone is quite inclusive. We've all inclusive as a matter of fact. And maybe more inclusive than I would have liked to see it. As Paul stated in 1 Timothy 2.3, God our Savior desires all, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Wait a second, Dad. This all smells like textproofing for universalism or some other liberal salvation doctrine. <laughs> God knew that the likes of me might argue exactly for something like that if the parable finished there. But it doesn't. <laughs> and the act three of the parable adds a precious and valuable yet still potentially sensitive condition to entering the kingdom of God. Let's look at it here. It's the odd final scene of the wedding drama. By now, all guests have arrived, they're mingling around cocktails, or their first century Middle Eastern equivalent, and the king, more relaxed, is having a look at his new crowd. Despite people from all social classes having been brought in from the streets, it appears that everyone was dressed properly as required in a wedding. Now, if you question how with potentially only hours to spare, everyone managed to get their 24-hour local moors or bridal shop. That's not the way the whole wedding costume dilemma got solved. 
It appears that the, that the custom in many similar settings at the time was for the king himself to provide the costume at the time of occasion. So the king approvingly strolls among his wedding guests when he suddenly notices a guest who, horror of horrors, is not wearing the obligatory wedding dress. There are several explanations that theologians have offered to the significance of this event, most of which see the wedding clothes allegorically as the need for us all who have been invited to the kingdom of God to put on Christ as our clothing. In other words, to accept to be covered by his righteousness. The new clothes might also mean the transformation that every person, every wedding guest, must undergo after the initial invitation. In other words, there were, there were no conditions for us being invited into the kingdom. But once having accepted the king's gracious invitation, and we are, we are expected to be transformed, to accept with gratitude and humility the gift we have received. To respect the king through our inside transformation as reflected through the clothes on the outside. As Galatians 3.26 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself. Now, just note an interesting additional detail in the story. When the kings confronted the improperly dressed guest, the guest apparently was speechless. The way that various theologians have interpreted this silence include the fact that we have no justification for not accepting God's free gift of grace and righteousness, or that the silence meant a willful refusal of that gift. When I look again at this parable from a certain distance, I see its three main acts as representing three foundational spiritual truths. The first act reminds me that I can never earn my entrance into God's kingdom, my salvation, by anything, anything. I, myself, my family, the church, my denomination, has said or done. As Ephesians 2.8 reminds me, salvation is by grace, through faith, so that no one can boast. And faith is much more than the conscious assent of some set of Christian beliefs. Faith is an intimately personal trust in a person, Jesus Christ, with the compulsory ensuing change of heart and transformation of the mind. And passages like the one we read earlier from Matthew 7 regarding who Jesus will ultimately recognize as his own make me think that his criteria for entering the kingdom have much more to do with my lasting change of heart than my sudden change of belief. With respect to the second and third acts of the parable, I feel both encouraged and scared. Encouraged because of God's willingness to bring anyone and everyone into his kingdom. And what better example of that radical inclusivity than myself, 
will literally glide my way into the kingdom of God, prying open those proverbial narrow gates with lies, more lies, and deceit. Quite a few years back. But I'm also scared. Am I, might I, be the wretched guest who became speechless? When the king asked him, hey dude, why are your wedding clothes? Don't get me wrong, I never had any problems throughout my faith journey, outwardly conforming to the unwritten norms of each Christian community I had belonged to over years. But conformity, right speaking, even right thinking, are all external clothes. Was my heart truly changed? And even more importantly, is it continuously changing? When the loving God, in the piercing words of Ezekiel 36, truly changed my heart of stone into a heart of flesh, have I guarded my heart so it won't, after all those years, recalcify or become hard again? My own answer to this last question is not as surely positive as I'd like it to be. And then, at times, when I am unsure, I am reminded, reminded of only one thing. It's not me who has done it. It's not me who has to keep it. It's Him. It's Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then I start whispering. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. When he shall come, the trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, in him, my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, a solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Is sinking sand. 